Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, and Indian. I've had conversations about life with people of every walk, and as I frame the South Asian experience, I seek out the stories of people and their purpose. And what they tell me over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. On this week's episode, my first guest is Salika a classically trained Indian-American R&B singer and songwriter whose empowering and soulful music showcases her as a new artist to watch. She's followed by Suhag Shukla, a leading voice for civil rights, human rights, and religious freedom. She's the executive director and co-founder of the Hindu American Foundation. Stay tuned. American R&B music is filled with a soulful reverence that pays homage to its deep roots. For Salika, an emerging Indian-American singer and songwriter, those roots blend tradition and a new declaration all at once. She's the daughter of M. Knight and Dr. Bhavana Shyamalan, and was raised on an eclectic offering of music, film, and art. She's also a classically trained musician and has studied literary arts and music at Brown University. Salika's first single and video, titled Clarity, was released recently, and a new single is on its way in November. Salika is proud to use her voice and lyrics to raise awareness for social justice and reform, youth education, and women's rights. We caught up recently and chatted about music as both comforting and inspiring. I have been really sort of hearing your song and the artistry behind it, and it's so comforting, in fact, to sometimes hear music like that. Do you actually have, you know, people have comfort foods and, and that sort of thing. Do you have comfort music? Hmm, that's interesting. Comfort music? Um, I definitely have favorite artists. I don't know what would count as comfort necessarily, but definitely the artists that I always come back to are, you know, Lauren Hill and Amy Winehouse. And I guess I guess you could say they're sort of my comfort artists and yeah. my my baseline when I'm, you know, coming back to like the R&B that I love and things like that. And, you know, some of my icons from you know, the legends, I guess you could say, are Nina Simone and Bob Marley and um, Etta James. So yeah. I guess in some ways, even though they're, they're icons, they're also comfort <laughs> music I mean, to me. Right. And uh, sort of like the idea that music can almost be that sort of foundation for any mood for I can listen to this at any time are there are there some of the um, artists or, or music that's on your playlist that doesn't matter your mood doesn't matter what um, time of day it is um, you know that those are those are your sort of comfort um, artists or comfort music pieces yeah definitely and I think also their you know catalogs are so vast especially you know with Bob Marley and and even Amy Winehouse, even though she only had, you know, a couple albums, I feel like the range of their music is so broad that I feel like there's always some song or some vibe of theirs that can fit, you know, the mood or feeling that I want to feel. You know, obviously, um, music's been a big part of your life. 
Um, all those influences and all those artists that you just mentioned, um, were these the kinds of influences that were just playing um, in your house or was there a kind of a discovery that was involved there? A little bit of both, I think. You know, I definitely did grow up on Lauryn Hill and a little bit of jazz music. You know, my, my dad would always play um, Etta James and Frank Sinatra and, you know, those that kind of music and, and in the car on the way to school all the time when I was young. And he introduced me and my sisters to Lauryn Hill because he'd play Miss Education of Lauryn Hill, that album, all the time. So we kind yeah. of grew up listening to that. And I think, you know, so those were just, I can't really remember a time when I didn't know them. And yeah. they're very much ingrained in my understanding of music and how I learned music. Um, and then, you know, there's newer loves. I would say I got into, you know, more jazz music later in life when I went to college and started studying, like, vocalists like Sarah Vaughn. And she became a new favorite of mine. And I fell in love with, like, some of her live albums and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And so that was kind of a later discovery that happened from from classes, actually, and just meeting other musicians. And yeah. um, especially, like, newer artists now, you know, like there's, you know, up-and-coming R&B artists and all that kind of stuff that are just new discoveries that happen all the time that become favorites of mine, too. Yeah, and I wonder if as they, as you listen to them, whether it's the timeless music that you're talking about or a jazz piece or a new artist that you really get into, do, do you, are you conscious of how it influences your style? Do you pay attention to that to say, ooh, that's a, that's a piece that I would really like, like to, you know, think about or... Um, how does that how does that influence process maybe work? You know, I, not really. And I talk to a lot of other artists that I knew, I know do function that way. And for some reason, I I haven't really been able to do that. Like take a song and say, oh, I want to make a song like this. It's I, I I don't find myself able to do that because my writing style starts super sparsely just from me writing lyrics and melody and and kind of piano chords. And so that is very just a kind of base instinct form of writing. I think when it comes to production, that the influence definitely comes in there because while I'm producing a song or in that kind of mode of like working on production, I'm listening to different music and sometimes a random thing that I never expect would give me an idea. Oh, they use a vibraphone there. That's a cool sound. Maybe it'll work on this song, you know, things right. like that. Or, you know, even background vocal ideas. Oh, wow, they pinned, you know, the background vocals on both sides here. But you're seeing two different things, so it kind of gives this full effect. Let me try that in the studio tomorrow. So things like that will definitely give me ideas. Um, but usually it's not from one source. It's just while I'm think in that mindset of looking for ideas and trying to be creative, anything that I listen to will kind of influence that and give me ideas right. to think about or try out. Or, or sometimes it'll even be, oh, that's what's not working with the song. Yeah. You know? <laughs> It's almost oh, like this trial and error that sort of constantly happens and yeah, those exactly. influences sort of happen happen naturally. And, you know, you obviously grew up in an Indian household. So were there, um, you know, any kind of Indian musical genres or um, those piece, pieces that were really playing a role in your musical development or how you wrote a song? Um, is there a Tabla Beats version of Clarity that's ever going to make <laughs> it out there? Or? Um, I would say to the first part of the question, definitely yes. Um, my, you know, my mom grew up listening to Bollywood music all the time in the house, and so you know, while my dad was playing all the R&B and jazz and all that kind of stuff, my mom was always listening to you know Indian folk music and Bollywood music, and I think that influenced me in a different way because I don't speak Hindi, so yeah. I it was I didn't really understand the lyrics of what you know what the songs were about, and sometimes she would translate them to me. 
but it was a much more kind of unconscious, I think, um, absorption, I guess, of that music yeah. and just the styles. But definitely, just because Indian music is so different than Western music, the scales are different, the rhythms are different, the aesthetics are different, the mixing is different, you know, all of those things are just very, 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 like, in opposition to kind of the standards that we have here. And so I think have, having been exposed to that, you know, throughout my life definitely opened me up to different ways of thinking about how to write melodies and how to, you know, use different instruments because they're used so differently, you know, like right. string section in an Indian song is very different than a sing string section in a, a pop <laughs> bass in America. They're, yeah. they're totally, it's almost like not the same instrument, so... And is there some magic to that kind of tension because they're so different? In some ways, it's it makes it easier to be influenced by. Definitely, I mean, ten tension in what way? Would you say? I mean, like um, because, like you said, like the string arrangement, say in a um, in an Indian song, might be so different than what you are, are accustomed to in a Western song. That because they're so contrasting, that it's actually easy to take those themes out. As opposed to like, well, you know, they might be so similar, um, or there might be similar themes. Does that ever make a difference when you're going through the creative process? Um, I would say, you know, because I'm making, I'm not making Indian music. You know, I, I yeah. grown up in America, and you know, I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm very American in my taste, and my music is definitely no one would categorize it as Bollywood or in any capacity. So, yeah, I definitely think that it's harder to kind of take those elements just because they're so out of the realm and, you know, even out of the, the diatonic scale pattern. I can't, you know, yeah. my grandma's always telling me, incorporate the ragas in your music and you should make, just sing a raga and make it, you know, into a, a pop song. And I'm like, I, I wish I could do it and I, I want to learn more. But to me, it's, it's even hard to learn those kind of melodies because I was never taught those scale structures or those rhythms. And so for me, I just have to, it, it teaches me by being more open-minded and making me think, open my ideas about what these instruments and what these rhythms could be, but I don't necessarily understand them on a, on a trained level or on a technical level. Well, you know, and you've been around art and film and medicine um, yeah. as big, big influences in your life. When it, was there a time or even a moment or some way that you can describe um, how you knew that music was going to be a calling for you? I would say not really because I, I don't remember a time when I wasn't playing music. My parents put me in piano lessons when I was four. Yeah. And so that was kind of my introduction to music. And I studied classical piano through my whole life um, until, you know, I started writing my own songs. And that was kind of my transition into songwriting. But there was never a, an absence of music or there was never a time when that wasn't a priority in my life in, in you know, in classical, while it was classical music or while it was, you know, songwriting. So I think, you know, from a young age, it was always the main thing that I was doing, I guess. Yeah. And I don't really remember it not being that. I think um, the songwriting itself becoming a calling, so to speak, definitely came later. And that was a process. And I find it, you know, still kind of hard to identify myself as a singer-songwriter. Because yeah. it feels, you know, you feel imposter syndrome and you feel like, you know, to call yourself that would... I mean, you have to make it to a certain level, and I don't feel like I'm there yet. You know, I'm just starting, and I'm just releasing my first songs, and, you know, I can't sustain myself off of my income as a singer-songwriter yet, so I feel like I can't call myself that. Um, but it is definitely 
you know, what brings me the most happiness and what I think about 24-7 and where all my creative outlets, you know, come to and um, I think it's a huge part of me. So in that sense, I guess it's my calling. <laughs> well, and I mean, you know, for, for in that same kind of thinking process, um, for you as someone who is emerging as an artist and emerging as, as a talent to share it with everyone, um, do you have to have this kind of blend of humility and a confidence at the same time in, a, in order to really make that expression more public and, and um, amplify it a little bit? It's, it's difficult, I think. Um, the confidence is essential in especially performing and just um, promoting the art, which is something that I struggle with. I think I feel very confident in, in my songwriting abilities just because I've been working and studying and I, I feel like, oh, I've written a good song and I can feel confident in that, but I guess the overall just, you know, I'm ready to go and I, this project is done and I feel 100% like I couldn't make it any better. I don't think I'm ever going to feel that. Um, so I've, sure. I've had to have that push from a lot of people who love me and support me and have also been working on the project to be like, it's good enough. You know, it's time to put, put it out and move on to the next thing and keep writing and keep going. And, um, you know, that's going to represent a certain part of my life when I was learning. And it's, this is going to be the first album and I'm going to keep getting better. And that's okay. It doesn't all yeah. have to be my best work. And it's, hopefully it's not. Hopefully I'm getting better and the next album is better and the next one is, you know, better than that. So. Well, that's terrific. Um, my guest this evening on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Salika. We're going to take a quick break and come back and chat more. Stay tuned. Hi, what's poppin'? This is Jyoti K. Listen to Ruckus Avenue Radio at dashradio.com and download the Dash Radio app for complete access 24 hours a day, seven days a week to our station. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My guest this evening is Salika. And Salika, I wanted to ask you, when you went to Brown and started really studying music, was that easy to package or compartmentalize into like an academic construct? When, like you said, your whole life, music has just been flowing around you. Did you feel that there was um, some getting used to in uh, actually now studying music as sort of, uh, um, you know, with the rigors of, of college? Hmm, definitely. I mean, just to some extent, I always was studying music, even, you know, classical piano, you know, you take lessons and you kind of have recitals with your forms of tests. And it, it is kind yeah. of that academic format, I guess you could say. And so transferring that into the college, you know, music program format wasn't super different. It's just that the subject matter is something that I can't necessarily control. So there's a lot of classes where the subject matter goes way beyond what is, you know, maybe helpful for me or something that I'm passionate about. And so kind of working through those to, to, to maintain the flow and, and be able to still take what I need and, um, and grow from, from those things, I think, was the yeah. difficult part. Because it's, you know, it's, it's still a, it's a, it's a college major, and so there's requirements and things right. like that. <laughs> And I would say, you know, it's also, it's a, the best part for me about the music program was just meeting these, the amazing students and, you know, yeah, the amazing yeah. teachers and just being exposed to the music and the work that they're doing because 
those are things I never would have experienced if I hadn't gone to college. Um, and so I feel right. like a lot of the things that I gained were not necessarily from lectures, although they did help me, but just that the group of people that kind of came together in that music program, it was just amazing. And I made, you know, my best friends there and the producers of the album that, you know, Clarity is on, I met in the music program, program at Brown. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't have had any of that. Do you think that through that program, I mean, you mentioned that there's uh, some strong influences through the relationships you developed and the exposure that you had. For those who maybe don't go through that kind of an academic program or, you know, the, the rickers of that kind of package, you know, for them, uh, do you find or would you find or would they find that, well, it's far more liberating not to have that kind of structure around you, meaning that you, you can create and you can let it flow a little bit more? Or is there a good balance between the two? Well, I think it's different for every person. I know a lot of musicians that I work with now who just college wasn't the right thing for them and they didn't need that and that wasn't what you know their life was calling for and they were ready to just go into the real world and start performing and all of that and that was the right choice for them for me I felt like at 18 years old I, I wasn't ready for that and I still had so much I think self-growing that I needed to do away from home I was you know very much a homebody and uh, you know was with my parents up until I left for college and never kind of lived on my own until that moment so College was a necessary experience for me in just terms of finding myself and figuring out my own tastes and yeah. following those. And um, I think, yeah, so it's different for everyone. But for me, the college structure, I think, was helpful because it forced me to, to again, like be exposed to things I never would have. And a lot of it was even outside of the music program. For example, you know, I studied a lot of literary arts and so I took poetry classes and I took a class on Bob Marley, which is which right. made me love him even more and just crazy things like that and physics and, um, you know, classes on Greek mythology and just things right. that influenced my songwriting and lyrics in really strange but wonderful ways. Yeah. Um, and I think especially the writers that I was exposed to, just, you know, people of color and, you know, young artists and things like that that I just, you know, you don't study in high school. Those right. are people you never hear about them in a high school curriculum, but I got to read their work and study it and talk about it with peers in school and it made me think about language and writing in different ways. Um, and so that class format was super essential for me to be able to have that experience. You know, when you're crafting a song or writing music, do you kind of have a mood or a temperature in mind that kind of drives you or is the process more organic than that? I would say yes, I think um, usually I have a feeling that I want the song to portray before I go in to write it. It's, it's either a subject or a, a message that I want to say before I start writing the song and so I'm always kind of aiming towards that mood. I like what you said, temperature, that's cool word. Um, that mood or color, like in my mind sometimes it's like just a feeling it can be really ambiguous but I know I want it to go in this direction and then as I come up with you know more things it narrows it down to a really specific point of view and message that I want to say um, what kind of like a funnel. Yeah. Well you know and is it is it harder to create or craft the music um, without some of that emotion involved or even the extremes of that emotion meaning you know people create very actively when they are in times of joy or in times of real pain or struggle. So 
are are those usually the sort of touch points of inspiration? Yes, definitely. <laughs> I would say every you know, I went through some some uh, tough breakups in relationships yeah. in in college, and those were huge. I guess you could say inspirations um, for the songs that I wrote on this album, and just struggling with you know identity and finding myself and kind of my relationship to my culture and how to embrace that and acknowledge my distance from it and kind of deal with that pain. Um, and also, you know, finding myself in areas where I realize, you know, I'm the only woman in this industry or in, in, in this situation and um, in, in many rooms. And so those situations and experiences really kind of inspired a lot of the songs and lyrics at moments of pain, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, or even like the, um, you know, the the absence of something, right? You're the only woman in a room, or you're you're the you're the marginalized one, and that sort of driving, you know, some of the inspiration. And and you mentioned kind of your culture um, as a part of that. Do you think of yourself as a South Asian American artist, or <laughs> rather as an artist who happens to have South Asian parents? Hmm, that's interesting. Do they have to be mutually exclusive? Right, and and I guess that's the that's the sort of third option, right? That they don't always have to be, you know, black and white like that. So how how would you maybe describe or reflect upon that? I think it's hard because as a minority person, sometimes you feel that you have to represent your entire culture, your entire gender, or your you know your entire people, so to speak. Um, and I don't feel like I can do that, and I feel like most minority people don't feel like you know, we're equipped to handle that because well, I'm my own person and I don't, I can't speak for the experience of every other South Asian American or South Asian American woman or, you know, I have a very specific life experience and a big part of that is being South Asian, but that's not the whole thing and yeah. I can't speak for everyone. And so I guess it's finding that balance where I, I'm, that isn't my entire identity, but it is a big part of who I am and influences how I see the world and how I've grown up and my value system and how I listen to music and how I write music and um, now, you know, going into music videos and working with other South Asian women, that's a really big um, component and important, I think. Just, it's, it's important for me to have other South Asians around me, and so. We are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My guest this evening is Salika. We're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk with her a little bit more about her current music and the future. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Maya Batra. Listen to Ruckus Avenue Radio at dashradio.com and download the Dash Radio app for complete access 24 hours a day, seven days a week to our station. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I'm here joined by Salika, um, Salika, your new song, Clarity, is really striking uh, an expression of empowerment, but it also feels like it's an intimate song with sort of a lot of passion. And would you say that, you know, to the first time listener or the person who's listened to it for now more than a week, like I have, and it's stuck mm -hmm. in my head, um, in, in that way, you know, is, is the song making sort of a bold announcement or is it sharing kind of a a secret epiphany or sort of like an aha moment? 
I would say more the latter. I feel like it's kind of a, a journey, you know, to this moment of epiphany, I guess you could say, from the beginning of the song and, and trying to, to follow inner strength and um, what that kind of tension feels like when you're in a, a toxic situation that you don't know how to get out of, but you feel it's wrong inside. And, and you know, listening to that instinct within yourself and kind of letting that lead you, but it's, it's hard, it's a struggle. And so the song and the music video kind of depict that journey. And so I would say it's not necessarily so much of an announcement. Um, it's definitely uh, very intimate and it's, it's passionate. Um, it's a, it's a song about a struggle, but hopefully there is some empowerment in it because it is a journey of finding yourself and um, holding on to, you know, our agency and the power that we have within us to kind of take ourselves out of situations that maybe aren't the best. You know, in in the year that we're in, in 2020, you know, the stakes are so high for racial and social justice and youth empowerment and kind of particularly amplifying the voice of women. Um, you know, as an emerging artist now, how are you adding your energy and your passion and your talent to that kind of set of movements? Mm. I would say, you know, I, I don't have much of a platform yet that I can, you know, use to cause real change, but I, I do try to post as much as I can and talk about it and um, repost a lot of the amazing voices and, and activists that I do follow and just kind of talk to my peers and my family about everything that's going on and go to the protests and everything like that. But I think the most important part for me right now is just educating myself because there's, there's you know, as much as I am aware of, there's so, so, so much more that I just don't know. And there's things that I'm never going to be able to understand in terms of, you know, the experience of black Americans and everything that they have to go through and all of the weight that they're carrying on their shoulders. But, you know, I want to just keep learning and do my best to kind of uplift those voices who have gone through it and are speaking out. Um, and, you know, another huge thing that I hope everyone is doing is voting and that's a way to kind of have our voices heard. So I will also be doing that. <laughs> Good. Yeah. I think that's a great message for everyone. And you know, you talked earlier about um, really building community and, you know, your your sister collaborated with you on the music video. Your choreographer was an Indian woman. Mm -hmm. What does that feel like to have that kind of sense of community when you're when you're making and creating your art? It's amazing. Honestly, I haven't experienced that type of community of, of being surrounded by South Asian, especially women in a work environment ever in my life. And you know, I've, I have, you know, in my family, you know, when you grow up in a predominantly white environment, you don't really have that community of, you know, people besides your family who are from your same culture. And so it was kind of the first time that I ever experienced just basically three Indian women running the set. And it was amazing um, to feel like I didn't have to compromise or hide that aspect of myself and that it was just inherently understood. And that's not a situation or dynamic that I have ever been in before that and I know that I'm super lucky to have that to have my sister and the choreographer who is Selena who kind of became an honorary sister of ours during this whole process and who we're continuing to make music videos with to have the three of us kind of as the creative voices and directors on that shoot was just I mean I, I can't explain I feel so grateful for that um, and I really hope that sort of adding a lot of power to the to your voice right yes definitely I mean part of it is that you know 
my sister directed it and we know each other so well because we're sisters and so she knows exactly you know what to say to kind of direct me and get me in the moment and also I think making a music video was super out of my comfort zone and still is and so that being the first experience with somebody who I feel really comfortable with and who knows me very well helped me to get out of my shell in ways that were necessary for the process and I, I don't know how I, how much I would have been able to do that if it was somebody else that I didn't know somebody who wasn't a woman somebody who wasn't South Asian all those things and it being feeling like family on set really helped me kind of be able to take down some of my uh, insecurities in my walls <laughs> <laughs> well and it's you know liberating and staying focused at the same time and sort yeah. of having that comfort is is really important um, we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask you, what's really now next for you artistically, and what are some of the things coming up for, for you as an artist? Well, there's so much. I'm so excited about so many things. So there we have a next single coming out, um, which I guess, I'm not sure when this will air, but it might already be out. Um, okay. That is also directed by Ashana and choreographed by Selena. And then we have another one, and then um, an album, which will be coming out in the spring. And... I'm already working on the second album, so there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot coming, and I, you know, I'm I'm really excited for whenever coronavirus kind of calms down to go back and start performing again. I've I've been doing some live, you know, recorded sessions and virtual things, which is which is a fun adventure and very different, which I'm enjoying and excited to kind of get more into that. But I I really can't wait to go out and be in front of an audience and finally you know be able to sing songs that are out and maybe a couple people will know them and that's I'm just excited for that well I think we're all excited with you um, Salika thank you so much for joining us it's been a real pleasure and I hope you'll come back and join us soon of course thank you so much I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me what up people this is Sunny Brown from Culture Shock and you're listening to me on Ruckus Avenue Radio Practicing spirituality and steering an American Hindu advocacy is both a calling and a welcome challenge for my next guest, Suhag Shukla. With a degree in religion, a background as a lawyer, and a deep passion to educate, Suhag is the co-founder and executive director of the Hindu American Foundation. She's a leading voice for civil rights, human rights, and religious freedom, and has made broad contributions ranging from the Department of Homeland Security to the United Nations. She's been recognized for her work by the Center for American Progress and her efforts promoting women and gender equality. We started our chat by talking about how her background cultivated her spirituality. I grew up, uh, was very fortunate to grow up in an extended family. Uh, my paternal grandmother lived with us and she was really instrumental in my exposure to the Hindu tradition. Um, she was a very devout woman. She had lost her husband at a very young age, so she raised five children on her own in abject poverty. And so her spirituality and relationship with God or you know, the divine was what was her sustenance um, and being able to get through all of that. So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, kind of witnessed her doing her daily uh, rituals, her puja. Uh, she read the Bhagavad Gita daily. And, um, and then oftentimes whenever we were doing things, she taught us how to make these really intricate uh, bead um, 
I don't even know how to explain it, like just this beadwork. And so we would sit there. And during that time, she would tell us stories. As she got older, she liked getting oil massages. And so we were tasked with doing that. But um, that was also a time where I would learn stories about Prahlad, who was a great devotee of Vishnu, or Mirabai, who was a great devotee of Krishna. And so we would just get kind of um, engrossed in these stories as we're doing our duty as, you know, as grandchildren of our our matriarch in the family. And uh, so that, I think, kind of fed my needs um, from a very young age in terms of hearing about these heroes, essentially, who had such great devotion and persevered through very difficult circumstances. But as I got older, the rituals, I needed to know the meaning behind the rituals. And so that's when I started questioning my parents, like, well, why do we uh, have to sit down and, um, you know, offer, offer sweets um, to, to our home altar? Um, why do we chant on a, on a meditation prayer beads? So all of these things I had questions for. And, you know, for them, they grew up in India in a milieu where everyone largely practiced similarly. So there wasn't necessarily a need to question things or to answer. Uh, Oftentimes, I think that at least as second generation Hindu Americans, we ask those questions because we ourselves are being asked them from our friends. And so in my asking those questions and my parents recognizing that they didn't have well, just because, or it's because we've done it this way all the time, wasn't satisfactory for me. (laughs) So, you know, for my parents, they practiced the tradition in a way that all of their friends and family did around them. So they didn't necessarily have people asking them why they did the things they did. And that's very often what spurs a person's question is not necessarily getting them internally, but externally. So my friends would ask, well, do you go to church or do you do this? Those are the questions that then led me to ask my parents and also sparked a curiosity of what is the meaning of all of this? And so they enrolled me in Balbihar in Chinmaya Mission, which had um, started in the San Francisco Bay Area. There were not that many temples in the San Francisco Bay Area. When I was growing up in the early 70s, the community was just starting to get their footing. Um, And so uh, really our spiritual life was attending, um, you know, pujas or celebrations at family members or friends. And so Chinmaya Mission um, really provided me kind of a platform to learn about the sacred texts by actually reading them and discussing them, but most importantly, how they applied um, to our daily lives. And that that's what got me hooked is understanding that even though these, these teachings are thousands of years old, how they continue to be relevant in, in our day to day and um, in kind of just this inherent need for us as humans to want to seek happiness. And so I was hooked. You know, and um, I think that having that uh, backdrop now, as you have been, um, you know, in a leadership role in this, do you um, reflect on your day-to-day life as well? Uh, you know, given what you just mentioned, are there elements of your day-to-day life that you would say are visibly Hindu? I think it's, it's hard to separate anything. I mean, from the moment that I wake up 
and do the prayer in which I ask Mother Earth for forgiveness for stepping upon her to the first morsel that goes into my mouth, um, you know, providing uh, or taking a moment with a prayer for thanking um, the universe for all that we have and recognizing that there's a, I think the core teaching of Hinduism that I think um, is probably, I try to keep at front and center is the connectedness of everything and everyone that that shared divine essence. And so whether it's, you know, not plopping myself on my sofa and mistreating it, or whether it's, you know, making sure that my dog is doing okay, or that my family is okay, knowing that they're all just extensions of me, um, really inform how I try to engage with the world. Now, that's not to say that I'm perfect and I'm able to not get angry at my husband when he pushes sure. my buttons. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think that I, I really actively try to keep that um, core fundamental teaching of our tradition front and center in all that I do. Do you remember there being an aha moment or a particular um, episode where you first knew that being an advocate for Hinduism in America was going to be sort of your calling? I don't think there was necessarily a single moment, but probably a string of moments, Um, you know, from, and and these moments started happening even before I had any consciousness of, of a Hindu identity, I suppose. So I can go back to, I think maybe it would have been middle school when um, Temple of Doom came out. And mm-hmm. there's a scene where, um, you know, it, there's like this, uh, the, the, the villain takes a monkey brain or something like that yeah. and raises it up. And, or maybe it's a monkey heart. I can't remember. Yeah. But clearly showing very, I mean, you couldn't associate whatever was going on there with anything other than Hinduism right. um, or at least India. And, you yeah. know, oftentimes there's conflations with the two and certainly there's overlaps, but not everything Indian is Hindu. Not everything Hindu is, is Indian. So, sure. um, you know, that, that moment of going to school and people saying, Oh my God, is that what you all do? Right. That was like a trigger of, okay, I know what I am and what my family is and what we believe in and what we stand for and what we hold as true and important. And then here's how everyone else might see us. You know, so there was that moment from, um, from middle school, then fast forward to college. Uh, college is a time when a lot of people are reflecting about, you know, what is their faith? What is their purpose? Um, how do they relate to anything beyond themselves? And so I went to the University of Florida. We had a place on campus that was kind of the free speech space. It was Plaza of the Americas. Um, interestingly enough, it's now called Krishna Plaza because the Hare Krishnas would serve um, free lunches. They've served right. millions of free lunches on, on campus. And so this was a spot where I would, of course, go for the free, wholesome, good vegetarian <laughs> meal that was being offered as a college student. You but it cannot was, beat that as a college no, student, right? <laughs> you can't, exactly. Yeah. And that's where also, you know, I'm, I'm in Florida. There were evangelical students on campus who would come and sit down and um, then ask me like, so what's it feel like um, to be damned to hell kind of thing. And so those were also moments where like, okay, I find inspiration in my faith 
and feel that it's, it's the right path, at least for me, but not everyone else does. Mm. Then you, um, and then throughout this entire time, whether it was growing up, whether it was in college or even into my early career, there's always a disconnect between how the media presented the tradition and the practices and again, how we knew it to be. So I think all of these points of, of discord between mm-hmm. the, my own vision and the community's vision and how non-Hindus viewed yeah. a variety of aspects probably were those moments that said, hey, this is the direction you have to go. And I'm a lawyer. Uh, So if I was going to be speaking out for, and I went into law school to do public interest work. Mm -hmm. And so if I was going to speak out for other communities or individuals who are suffering, um, why not also speak out for ours? And not to say that it's a it's a, it's a different kind of suffering, right? To not be understood. Sure. And that's probably what sparked it. My guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Suhag Shukla. After a quick break, we're going to come back and talk about what it means to be a Hindu in the American cultural landscape of 2020. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Samika, and you're tuned in to Ruckus Avenue Radio exclusively on Dash Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My guest today is Suhag Shukla. And Suhag, I wanted to ask you, is it a challenge to be spiritual as a Hindu in 2020? And does the cultural landscape that's seasoned with yoga and meditation make that any easier for Hindu Americans? That's a good question. Um, I think that... We as a people, well, you know, it's, it's difficult to, first of all, make a broad statement about all Hindus. Um, sure. you know, there's, there's obviously a diversity of understanding of the tradition of, of practice and what uh, spirituality looks like in, in everyone's lives. Uh, but I'll speak to maybe how stereotypes can impact identity mm-hmm. uh, and when you are inundated with negative stereotypes about um, the Hindu tradition, so you know the the elephant in the room is oftentimes caste that you yeah. know this some sort of kind of we don't even know exactly what caste entails. Uh, you know, in India, it has a very specific um, understanding, or I don't even want to say a definition, but at least a structure, a legal structure, or framework. Yeah. Um, but what that is exactly you know, even academics are trying to struggle through that. But at least in the public imagination, it's a hierarchical, um, discriminatory, immoral system. And it doesn't necessarily play out in the daily lives or identities of Hindus, yet it's something that we are required to answer for. Other things might be, you know, um, oh, you worship idols, especially when you come from a Judeo-Christian framework where idol worship is, you know, sin number one. That also is kind of a stereotype that pushes us into a corner or feeling defensive. Many gods, that's another stereotype that, oh, you're polytheistic. And again, when you're in a large framework that uh, pushes against that or sees that as somehow inherently immoral or wrong, you can see how these stereotypes would 
or assumptions about the tradition may not want a middle schooler, say, for instance, to yeah. openly talk about, about their traditions. And that ends up taking a cumulative effect. It makes the job of parents and families who want to instill these values and traditions and don't want to see just that they, because they made the choice to move to the United States, if they're immigrants, um, for something that's provided them value to disappear. Um, right. if, if it's something that gives people that ethical compass to engage with the world in a way that's not just responsible, but beneficial to others, that's not something we want to miss out on. And so that probably is the greatest challenge uh, that uh, it's, a, it's an additional obstacle to sure. all the other obstacles that other people already have in their lives in right. terms of making spirituality and religiosity a part of their lives. And I mean, as we educate the public, educate ourselves, um, we certainly, you know, find out that there's a, an advocacy that goes with that, because as, as we talked about already, that there's a balance between, of course, um, the, the being proactive part and, and being reactive part. So is it possible to advocate for a religion or a faith without it being perceived as coming at the expense of other religions or faiths? That's a tough water to navigate, so to speak. It is, but I think that uh, it, when you advocate for one, you're advocating for others. I don't think that, uh, you know, because other communities are doing it too. And so yeah. when you enter the space of advocacy, even if it's just for, say, your tradition, all of a sudden you look to your right and you're like, oh, that person's Jewish and they're advocating for their community. Yeah. You look to your left, oh, that person's Muslim and they're doing the same. Or there's a Sikh, there's a Buddhist, there's a Christian, you yeah. know, or there's not just a Christian, but there's a Catholic, there's an yeah. evangelical, there's a Methodist, right? Like all of the different people are doing that all the time. And when you enter the space of advocacy, then all of a sudden you're looking at the challenges that you face. Say it's something like the separation of church and state. Yeah which is an issue that HAF works on. Well, some of the, the, the I think, most influential briefs um, before the U.S. Supreme Court that we've signed on is with the Baptist Joint Committee. Mm -hmm. Now, no one would, you know, in, in a stereotyped world, you're like, well, oh, the, you know, conservative Christians want X, Y, Z. Well, that's not necessarily the, the, the case. I sure. think that when you start advocating on your faith, one, you realize what are the issues or challenges that are specifically faith-based in nature that I'm dealing with. And then you realize, oh, this one issue is one that X, Y, Z is working on. We yeah. may not agree on theological grounds on the nature of the soul or whatever else sure. or what constitutes a sin or not, but we agree on this yeah. And it's an opportunity to work together. I think that that oftentimes um, at least make it lost, right? That there's far more collaboration that probably happens in that spirit of advocacy than, than not. And you mentioned this idea of, of separation of church and state. I mean, I'm trained as a physician. And of course, you know, when I care for a patient, um, I have to be agnostic to mm -hmm. what their what their beliefs, their religions, um, their their backdrop is. So when our elected officials are, are governing, so to speak, and with the principle of that kind of separation, 
Um, is it possible to advocate for a specific um, group uh, like Hindu Americans, but um, in a way that, that supports collaboration and supports the notion of that sort of agnostic behavior from a government system? Absolutely. I, I think that Hindus are well-placed for that regardless because our tradition is inherently pluralistic. You know, our tradition says that there are, there exist multiple paths to understanding and relating to a higher power. So one, that should allow us to be accepting of others and whatever path they're on. We're not coming in to any conversation from a point of condemnation. Yes. So in that sense, I think that the tradition itself promotes um, at least gives us gives us a platform to enter into any conversation from a place of conviction. Uh, the second thing is that, as I said before, there are issues that we can come together on. Um, and as long as we understand that we can't, we won't always be able to work together mm -hmm. um, or we won't always want to work together. And that's fine because... As much as uh, religion is a force for good, religion is also often used to discriminate against others, to subjugate others, to condemn others. And those are the difficult points that oftentimes actually become the highlighted points of, mm -hmm. of religion. And so you don't have to deny all of that. There are times where you have to take other, you know, members of other traditions to task. Sure, But I think that as long as you also have the positive work uh, there, you know, it's, it's always about a balance. And um, as long as you, I think, root your work in certain um, key values mm -hmm. of freedom, equality, uh, those are the types of values from which you can kind of navigate the the positives as well as the the more tense aspects of uh, interreligious engagement. My guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Suhag Shukla. After a quick break, we're going to come back and talk to Suhag more about what she is working on and what she's optimistic about in 2020. Stay tuned. Yo, this is Prabdeep from New Delhi, India, and you're listening to Rakas Avenue Radio. Welcome back, everyone. I'm joined again uh, today by Suhag Shukla, who leads the Hindu American Foundation. And Suhag, I actually wanted you to talk a little bit and inform our audience and me a little bit more about the Shakti Initiative and what's been its impact on um, uh, folks uh, in the Hindu American Foundation and uh, the community abroad. So the Shakti Initiative is a project that's very close to my heart uh, because, well, first I pursued, you know, when, when I talked a little bit about um, being hooked when I went to uh, Balvihar and Chinmaya Mission and starting to actually read um, commentaries on the sacred texts, that actually inspired a bachelor's degree in religion. And right. so um, when I was pursuing my bachelor's degree, my senior thesis 
was on the Vedic woman. Um, who was she and will she return? Uh, because as I was reading um, some of the, the most ancient and um, central texts of Hinduism, you saw these really amazing female characters, female sages, um, even the deification of really important aspects of nature um, were very often feminine. And so you could see um, this inherent um, appreciation, respect, maybe even fear <laughs> of, of feminine aspects of uh, the feminine divine. And so I've, this is always, and, and of course, I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, all of these things. Um, I also worked in domestic violence um, mm -hmm. when I first graduated from law school. And so I have the, the traditional um, kind of philosophical understanding of what it is to be feminine. And I think one of the things that is most profound about our tradition is that the feminine is not just limited to a female body. Yeah. We all have male and female or masculine and feminine aspects to us. And so it's about balance and it's about kind of bringing these two aspects into, into being able to work together and bring out the best in one another. And so that's what inspired me in terms of, I guess, if you want to call it a, a Hindu feminism or a Hindu, I don't even know what the opposite of feminism would be in terms of me, we just don't talk about it. Right. But I mean, even, even being able to um, promote and, and really celebrate this, this, you know, tradition that is not always at the forefront of mm -hmm. what people think about when they think of Hindu traditions or Vedic traditions. Exactly, exactly. And so what I was finding, though, is that, you know, if I have this big bookshelf behind me, and this entire section is on Hinduism and women. Yeah, um, yeah. And what if you went online, what you would find is Hinduism is about patriarchy. Hinduism is about misogyny. Um, Hinduism mistreats women. And that's pretty much all the content that was available on online yeah. and or you know social issues in india uh being conflated with the tradition and so unless you specifically went to look up something on the goddess lakshmi for instance if you just right. did hinduism and women what i was largely finding was n negative content stereotyped content and so what i felt is that HAF was well-placed in providing a clearinghouse of not just uh, teachings about the role of the feminine principle um, for, for all of existence, um, but who are the inspirational females within the Hindu tradition? What are the challenges that are uniquely um, facing women within Hinduism right. um, and Hindu culture? And what are some of the practices that are actually uniquely female in the tradition? Sure. So all of that sort of information, if there was kind of a one-stop shop, and then that should then inspire you. If you don't know um, where you want to go, or if you don't know what different 
ways there are to get there, you need that first introduction. And that's Mm. what the Shakti Initiative is about. That here, you know, maybe you didn't know about this Bhakti poet uh, who hails from Kashmir, Lalishwari. Read about her, just a short snippet. And then that becomes kind of a um, jumping off point to deepen your study, if that's something that you're interested in. So that was my hope, uh, you know, and I, we still need to build out a lot more content. Uh, so we're looking forward to doing that over the coming years. That, that's terrific. And, um, you know, it offers such a, a great backdrop to, um, you know, this, this next question, which is really when we think about um, the, the strange year we're having, right now and, and trying to find, I think, uh, anchors um, to, to what, how we move forward. And I think the idea of having anchors and reminding us of those anchors, whether that be in, um, you know, feminism in, in Hinduism or yoga or meditation, I think those are all really important. But as you reflect on, on the year and sort of going forward, um, as a Hindu American, what are you looking forward to? What um, makes you and helps you to be optimistic these days um, as you look ahead? Uh, it's hard to be optimistic. You know, it, this, this entire pandemic has had like such highs and lows, but I think what's carried me through, and I've seen glimpses of that, is a growing recognition of our inherent connectedness. And the pandemic has really brought that front and center that, yeah. you know, something as simple as wearing a mask, I'm not wearing a mask for me. I'm, I'm wearing a mask for you, yeah. right? Those types of things or thanking our frontline workers, having greater appreciation for someone who delivers pizza to your, yeah. to your front door. Yeah. All of these things. Uh, I believe that the pandemic, the, um, the, the very stark reminder that our country is not meeting the promise of, of dignity for all races, especially African-Americans. Uh, all of those things, I think, have brought front and center or need to. Sometimes we forget it. I think in the rhetoric uh, around especially race relations and things like that, I hope that rather than demonizing one another, we come from that place of connectedness, that my well-being is connected to your well-being. And that is, that is so fundamentally part of our tradition. Um, but to see it kind of play out um, and for, it, for there to be kind of a spontaneous um, recognition of it, uh, because of the pandemic, because of some of the social challenges that our country is facing, I think that gives me hope. Uh, and, and also bring in also our connectedness with the environment. Yeah. The pandemic is very much a part of the environment. The forest fires that are happening in California, it's all coming together in a, in a very stark reminder that we're forgetting that connectedness. Yeah. And that we have a responsibility to foster and um, honor that connectedness. And so I hope um, and am optimistic that we will continue to become more aware of that reality. Well, um, Suhag, we're, we're so grateful that we connected with you today. Um, 
Thank you so much for being a guest on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. We hope you'll come back soon. Thanks for having me. This was wonderful. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about people and their purpose in the South Asian diaspora. And what they're basically saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Listen every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific on RuckusAvenueRadio.com. This is Karen David, and you're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio.